Dear listener, if you like this podcast, I want to tell you about something else you might enjoy as well. Every week, I host an online meetup. In each meeting, I give a presentation on some programming topic, or I bring a guest to the group for a discussion, or I do a code review on a member's code base, or I do some kind of consultation with one of our members. Coming to this meetup is kind of like listening to this podcast, except it's live and interactive, which means you get a chance to ask questions and participate in a conversation with other programmers like yourself. The meetup is also a fun place to meet some new friends. To learn more and to sign up, visit codewithjason.com slash meetup. Now on to the episode. Hey, today I'm here with Yong Sheng. Yong Sheng, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Tell us about yourself. Right. So uh, I've, I'm, I'm 100% born in Singapore. I grew up here, went through the education system here. I'm a Chinese Singaporean. So 70% of my time I use English uh, professionally as well as at home. And the other 30% of my time, I'm, I'm, I'm conversing in Chinese. I do a bit of writing, but uh, it's it's not my primary uh, go-to language, though. So I'm currently an Agile coach with Odd East Singapore. And I spend a huge amount of my time working with clients, uh, delving into their technical code base and teaching practices. Uh, a, a lot of times, they're struggling with uh, legacy struggling with well, what, what we typically call legacy code base uh, because it's not protected and they don't have a, a way to protect the knowledge that they've gained while writing the code. And currently I'm working with an Indonesian digital bank um, and, and, and uh, they're primarily based on Node.js uh, service tech. Okay. I have so many questions about that stuff. Um, first, a lot of people might not be familiar with the cultural background of Singapore and I'm mm-hmm. myself actually not super familiar. I know that there are a lot of Chinese in Singapore. Uh, Mandarin is is one of the most spoken languages there. Uh, but can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Right. So Singapore is based at the tip, uh, the end of the tip of the peninsula, uh, Malaysia. Um, historically, we used to be part of Malaysia, uh, and uh, we broke off in 1965 and gained independence. So even before that, we were a British colony. Um, so that was uh, in the, 19, uh, the 1800s till uh, the 1950s. Um, and so very much uh, the, the legacy of that inheritance, uh, we very much were brought up uh, with English. The English uh, uh, system, the metric system, as well as the spoken language and the legal system as well, it's fully British. And uh, with that, we went through school uh, with an ling- uh, English-based education system. And Chinese uh, was afforded mostly to Chinese-speaking communities where it was taught as a second language. And I was fortunate enough to do it as a dual language track in my high school. So that's why I still have a lot of uh, 
uh, that legacy, <laughs> speaking Chinese, writing Chinese. And part of the work that I do, which is like I mentioned, where we do agile coaching, we do conduct um, uh, development, developer practices uh, classes. And I do have classes with Taiwanese students, and I do work with uh, companies that are uh, based off in uh, mainland China as well. So that's why I still have to maintain those roots and speak the language. I see. So, okay. yeah, yeah, so, and of course, Chinese and English are very different languages. There's almost zero overlap. Like, unlike English and Spanish, English and French, something like that. There's a lot of words right. in common. Um, the only words in common that I know of in, in Chinese and English are things like coffee. That's the, that's the one and only example I can think of off the top of my head, even. Well, it's similar to Japanese as well, then, right? If you, mm. if you, if you would use it as an analogy. So mm -hmm. they would say coffee, and then in Chinese, you say coffee, mm -hmm. and then you have coffee in the English, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's like two totally different worlds. Uh, the, yes. Knowing one doesn't benefit you toward the other one at all. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And yeah, I was going to ask you if your if your clients were local or or what. I imagine that most of your clients have to be at least in that area of the world, just because of time zone issues. It would not be very practical to have uh, a lot of clients yeah. in the U.S. We we do have a a. Um, we do go out with that intent. Uh, part of the the thing that uh, we as a company decides uh, basically is we decide what we work on, who we work with. And pretty much with that, we then decide where our clients would be. But then again, um, sometimes it's where the money comes. And if there's a draw for it, there's a need for it. And then, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, uh, we are very picky about who we work with. And those people need to believe in some of the systems that we believe in before we even decide to hop on the bus with them. Okay. So you say we, at first I thought maybe you were an independent um, agile coach just working on your own, or do you work for a company that does agile coaching? Yeah. So uh, I am with Odd E Singapore. So Odd E was a company that was started by Bas Voda. Do you know Bas? No. Uh, from the Less community, Less Huge, uh, which is Large Scale Scrum. Um, he was one of the pioneers in Scrum uh, with Ken Schreiber. So okay. uh, I started the company when he was uh, leaving Nokia, the Nokia that was building the base stations uh, out of uh, Finland and China. And when he decided to settle in Singapore back in uh, 2008, uh, that's when he started the company. And the rest, I would say, is history. So uh, Odd E grew out of Singapore. And then later on, we had bases in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, we have colleagues in the uh, US, but a lot of us are operating very much on our own. So uh, there is no central hierarchy or whatnot. So each locality decides how we operate and uh, what do we do and who do we work with. I see. Okay. Yeah. So we're pretty small outfit. So in Singapore, there's uh, four of us. And then uh, each locality, the largest, I would say, currently is probably Singapore. With all okay. Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> so fairly distributed. Right. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking just now, you know, it's interesting how separate a lot of the different parts of the world are. Um, like, I went to Paris earlier this year, and there's a whole Ruby community in Paris that I didn't really know about. Um, mm -hmm. And that made me think about, like, you know, I, I keep track of the places in the world where I have people on this podcast from. 
and I have like 20 different countries. I've never had anybody from China on the show. Um, And I don't know if that's because there's not a big Ruby community in China or because it's just a totally separate world. Um, And then that made me think about, so you follow me on Twitter. That's how I know about you. And Mm -hmm. I saw, I saw obviously your name and your Chinese characters next to your name. And whenever I see somebody Chinese follow me on Twitter, I'm very interested because like I told you pre-show, I I speak some (laughs) Chinese. And so I'm like, oh, a a new Chinese friend. Um, And so you follow me on Twitter, but I don't know if you're a Ruby person or what the connection is there. Um, What, how did you find me? I'm just curious about that. Right. So um i am well i never align myself to any te- technology stack if you will i work on ruby because in my previous life um i was with this company that was building an indoor positioning system uh out of uh, wi-fi signals and it was a ruby stack uh and uh, basically we 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 built everything out of uh, ruby redis mqtt and whatnot and it wasn't then that I started following you anyway, but uh, I saw there were very nice articles that you were sharing that were hitting me in uh, where it hurts. <laughs> I, right? Um, I especially like a recent article you had uh, or a, a, a post that you made about flaky tests. And oh. I saw so many recurring patterns of that uh, with the clients I'm working with, even in the code bases I've been working with as an employee myself. Um, or even as a contract uh, developer myself, so so that 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 was where it clicked for me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Um, I was hoping people would appreciate that flaky test post because as I was working on that flaky test project, I found very little um, resources, very few resources online about flaky tests. There are a lot of blog mm-hmm. posts about flaky tests, but none of them I found were very substantial. They gave they gave a few like bullet points of advice, but they didn't really go go to any real depth. And so once I had to learn all those things the hard way myself, I wanted to share that. So it's good to know that all that hard work I did is is appreciated. I've 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 heard from you and from one other person. So it's appreciated by at least two people. Um but that's that's enough. That's really good to hear. Um so I have a couple questions for you about your consulting engagements one is how long do they tend to run and two what kind of work do you tend to do with your clients right it really depends so there are some which are very shallow engagements where they come and they want to understand like you have this thing called less and we have this huge product and we have this many teams how do we actually implement something like that so that's more on the organizational aspect of uh, the work that we do and I have a couple of colleagues which are more adept at working at that level. For me, it's uh, basically coming from the bottom up where for us to make all those organizational changes, you need to prepare your teams and your developers technically to enable the flip. Without those technical capabilities, you are just making a lot of uh, nice-to-have organizational restructuring without penetration deep into uh, the code base, into your product to really effect those changes. So we talk about trying to uh, uh, minimize complexity, uh, minimize accidental complexity, and those actually go way deep into the code base. It's not just at the organizational level, but it's how you work and 
that seeps into your code base as well. And that's where I work. And for me, a lot of times uh, the engagement, like we were asking about the tenure, it could span for as short as a month to as long as uh, one or two years. So typically, um, the the big bigger players like banks are the one that would engage us for much longer. So um, I've worked with uh, Credit Suisse, I've worked with uh, uh, my current client, which is a bank. Uh, I, I can't share who it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an Indonesian digital bank. And, and, and basically, they have a lot of pain. They have a lot of hurt in that... Um, Typically, they would come and they probably had spent a lot of money with companies like McKinsey or even IBM or even uh, Accenture. And those people just throw them a bunch of stacks of um, frameworks or this is how you do stuff. And the, 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 the teams that's inheriting baggage didn't actually pick up the technical capabilities to uh, run the long tail, I would say, of software development because I like 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 uh, we teach in our class. Uh, when you build a software product, uh, it's the long tail of the maintenance that is the bigger cost to what you're building. So you want to think about testability. You want to think about maintainability way up front and make testing first class. And which yeah. is why a lot of the, the 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 posts that you make really clicks with me, and I really enjoy reading those things because. There are things that I can see, I can share, and it's not just me uh, within my own company that we have this belief. I, I, I see in the wider community, people have gone through those trenches like yourself, and you guys have learned it, and you have actually seen uh, things in, in, in those other clients, which is not just this part of the world, but uh, for example, maybe in Europe or in the US, and and, and that's what, what makes it uh, useful for me. And so one month to two years, that's the tenure. Um, and I've worked with banks. I've worked with um, gaming companies as well. Um, mm. So that's a Taiwanese company. And I had a short tenure for about three months with a big telco company in China, like the biggest. So you oh. probably know who it would be. <laughs> I don't know if I know. Um, yeah, you you might be surprised it's how Huawei. little. Oh, okay. That's the name that came to my mind. Yeah, right. but that's the only name I could think of, so I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, right. Yeah, so so that's for tenure, and uh, like uh, usually when I go in, is they have a, a pile of uh, uh, source code. They have no way to find out when they introduce a change, how that change would propagate into problems that they will see in production. They have no way of preempting if what they're going to build is actually re- reliable. So the verification part of it, which they always like to talk about, which is test automation. Um, to me, test automation is nothing more than verifying what you want to build before you actually write the code. So without that capability, then you are just writing code and then throwing it out into the wild and hoping and praying that things would work by having a bunch of QA developers uh, catching those things for you. Yeah, so I want to I wanna like touch on a couple of these things you've said because i want to see if like first of all you and i are on the same page and i maybe want to articulate these things to the listener a little bit um because i think they're really important so there's a lot of tutorials online about like how to program as in like how to get a piece of code Mm -hmm. to work Mm -hmm. on your local machine Mm -hmm. um and a lot of developers obviously are very aware of those things um and then there's a lot of tutorials on various tools and stuff like that, like how to use this mm-hmm. or that library. 
developers are mm -hmm. very aware of those things. Um, but I find that, at least in the Rails community, and probably a lot outside the Rails community too, um, there's less of a fo focus on programming principles. And there's less of a focus on, I don't know how to put it, but like how to actually go about the work. So like not the actual code you write, but how you how you write the code. And part of that's like the DevOps stuff, like um, the manner in which you deploy and all that stuff. But some of it is just like the way you go about doing your work, um, like your Git habits and stuff like that. And so I imagine that when you're talking about these things, you're talking about all these things like maybe you go into a into an organization and they don't have a strong culture of automated testing maybe the developers have poor habits maybe they don't have as an organization as a whole they don't have good devops habits that kind of thing are those the kinds of things you're talking about right spot on so uh, uh many a times when i start working with my client is i just silently uh pair with them and i sit there and look at how they work what is their day-to-day -day key keystrokes? How do they use their IDE? What is their? Uh, how do they use and interact with Git? Do they understand? Wait a second. Sorry, I have to interrupt and ask. Um, how do you how do you get people to do that with you? Because maybe you go into an organization and you don't know anybody. People don't mm -hmm. necessarily see you as a friend, mm -hmm. especially if it's a, a re remote engagement, that's like a bit harder to develop rapport and stuff like that. And so right. you might put out a call and say, hey, I'd like to pair with some of you guys and you get no takers. How, how do you get to that point? Right, so there is this part where we call the, uh, so I'm lucky that uh, for my current engagement and my previous engagement is that we are at the stage of a flip. And in the flip, they were in their previous legacy structure. And then we went through a flip in which they went through a storming and forming. Well, and what does this that, mean, flip? Well, basically a flip, which is from their old uh, Spotify model, how the teams work, the structure. We went through a reorganization of how the team are structured based on um, uh, a few parameters. Uh, it could be something that they would choose that... Uh, People who likes to work on Node.js, they would form the team together. Or people who likes to understand and work on certain business functionality, like, for example, a money movement. Um, I'm going too far into my client's yeah. uh, business. But anyway, uh, so that, that's what I mean by a flip. So, so it, it's basically for them to recognize how and who are the people they want to work with. And then they will form the teams as, as such. And I am actually introduced as an element that may potentially form a team with them and then i would join the team as a team member I, I don't go in as a consultant or a coach or whatnot i'm always introduced as a team member and that basically just breaks down all the those uh, defenses that people might have i pick up items from the backlog like everybody else i work with them whatever is the highest priority that they're working on it might be solving a bug on production rota and that's where i gain the trust and i slowly you know, uh, break break down the ice and the defenses, mm -hmm. and it, it might take a month, uh, two months, and then eventually, and 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 it's through all this working with them that I start to understand their behavior and how they work. So, in fact, I don't even go in and say let's pair. I, I see. 
pick up something with them and see how they go about doing work first. And slowly with some of that, we actually go through our retrospective and then we inspect the way we work in the last one week. And then people would suggest, how do we want to change the way we work so that we could do better? Okay. And I imagine there must be quite a variance in people's interest level in 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 learning these things. Like I imagine some people are probably very eager to learn. They they see somebody like you and they say, "Oh great, this is a wonderful opportunity to learn from someone like you. Let's let's do it." And maybe some other people are less interested and they they don't exactly welcome it with open arms. Um, they, maybe they don't even think they have a problem or, or they think everything's fine, that kind of thing. Tell me about that a bit. Right. So, uh, boss likes to call those people the Zexes. Uh, if you know, Dr. Seuss, I do know Dr. Seuss. I don't know that term though. The, the, the Zexes. Well, I'll send you the, the, the link to the video. Okay. Basically they are people who are stubborn. Like if, if I would use the word, and these are not the kind of people we tend to want to spend too much energy on. So one of the remit is to bring up the technical competency of the teams. And I go where the energy draws me. And if there are people who are willing and who open up their arms, and basically when I work with them, I demonstrate uh, my conversancy with either the IDE or the tool or the Git, uh, whatever tools they're using. And I show them, for example, let's say, let's start, you don't even have a way to run end-to-end tests. Let's basically bootstrap whatever product you have now. Let's uh, set up Cypress. Let's do some API REST, uh, API testing. Let's do some wire mocking with Mortabank. And I demonstrate that iteratively. And I we, we do it with the smallest baby step. And I show them that we don't write the, the, the we, we don't preempt how we want to write the code. We just write the simplest code to pass the test. It might be even a simple end-to-end test or whatnot. We might even just um, uh, uh, mock out uh, the, the response, the, 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 the kind of response I would want to have. And I show them that, okay, now we can get, get a green pass now. Now do we think about the design? Now we think about how do I want to add encryption and how do I want to add authentication and so on and so forth. And okay. people appreciate that. They, they, they see how things evolve and they are less afraid that you're actually throwing them a huge ton of uh, things that they have to learn. And you actually go through that motion with them. And, and I actually use uh, tools like Tuple and I've used tools like pop.com with them. And, and it, it's, it works well uh, for remote work uh, for mm-hmm. us. And um, with, with pretty good uh, internet connectivity, I think the latency is uh, pretty all right. And uh, we just exchange, we just go through the, 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 the ping pong way of uh, driver navigator and uh, we just swap roles as, as we work. How much of the time do you go into an organization and they have no tests at all? And how much do you go in? And this is almost worse when you go in and they have tests, but you look at the test they have and you just say, oh, no, like this is like you guys are taking the complete wrong approach. These tests are not actually valuable. We need to like almost start over from scratch. How much of the time do you experience those? And I'm especially interested in that latter case. How do you... How do you deal with that? So uh, I would say 99% of the time is the latter case. Uh, oh, very few mm-hmm. cases where they would be uh, at point blank. Uh, point blanks would be cases where I was actually an employee and I actually joined a startup 
and they didn't even know how to even begin building a tool because uh, a product because what they care about was showcasing something they needed to get something to the market fast. So that was my experience when I was with the startup, and we we, we didn't actually start covering uh, stuff with tests until much later. We knew that we had money to churn and money to burn, so we actually. Uh, intentionally put things on the back burner, I would say. But as 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 a coach, uh, most of the time, uh, I've come across uh, uh, companies or clients where they they actually had a baggage of tests, and they think that why I had so many tests and things are still not working. And um, uh, so to answer the question, we never, or I would say, I never actually go in and ask them to do a major rewrite. We evolve things slowly so there's a new feature that comes along or there's a bug that comes along and we have to fix the bug or we have to implement the feature now let's check do we have a test for this bug to fix do we have a test that is going to verify this behavior for the new feature that we want and then we look around the surrounding of the code base and we change things a little bit at a time as we go one of the most interesting things i see sometimes is i, I see this a lot actually um, people write a test and the description for the test says that it does such and such correctly. Yeah. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, maybe we can talk about, maybe we can talk about that. Like what, what's bad about that and what should people do instead? So when I see a test and it's telling me something, I would try to change the test to see that it can fail. And if the mm-hmm. test can't fail, when I change the test, <laughs> then something is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what I was getting at is like, if if the test says it does such and such correctly, it tells me that the, the test wasn't written with the sufficient level of specificity in mind. Because what does it mean for it to do it correctly? Um, and it, something that I, I thought I had the other day when I was looking at some tests with somebody is like, I, I see a lot, okay, so these tests that say it, it does such and such correctly, usually there's just like one test case. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, you have to have the, the test case where it does, you, you feed it in some certain input and you expect some output. Then you have at least one other test case where you give it some different input and it gives you some other output. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you could just hard code the code and, and it would work. You have to have multiple scenarios to make sure it actually actually does something. Corner, basically the triangulation. I think that's where you're getting at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so something I've been trying to articulate to myself for the last few months is like, what exactly is this mindset problem that, that certain people have where they, they view testing not as, again, I haven't been able to articulate it yet, but rather than spelling out these various scenarios and test cases they say it does this correctly it does that correctly it's almost like they're thinking of it as um they're just banging on something to to make sure that it works although they're not really testing anything when they do that i I wondered if you had any thoughts on like if first of all if you like understand the the like two mindsets that i'm talking about and if you've seen that and if you have a way to like articulate that um I'm trying. Let, let let me answer it, and and, and you decide if, if I understand the two mindsets uh, from your perspective. Mm-hmm. So um, when when I try to verify a behavior by writing tests, I start with the innocence 
that I don't know anything about what it needs to do. And I think about the zero case, or so-called the, the, the entry case. And then um, let's say it's about a, a, a list that I have to take as an input. I would basically uh, numerate through or enumerate through zero, one, two, three, four, five, um, and then basically use those as my test inputs and feed through without assuming that I know how the implementation is going to look like. And I do not start to generalize. That's the word I would use. Generalize my implementation until I see a recurring pattern. And as my test gets more and more specific, then my implementation can get more and more generalized. I don't know if that makes that sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that, that's, that's uh, one way to think about it. And I would let the test review to me if there are certain... Uh, things I could do with the evidence that there are tests to cover those cases or those inputs that now I need to have a more powerful implementation. So I might start with hard coding my, my production code. And then later on, I might have an if-else statement. And then later on, I might try with a for loop. And then later on, I might try with a while loop. For while, probably the same. And then the next step, maybe I'll try with a recursive call and as things evolve, I might decide I might have a domain object because it's shouting out at me now that uh, there's something in the code base that now probably you need to ex extract out a, a domain concept because you keep working at the prim primitive level, uh, be it your test inputs, be it uh, uh, your, your implementation and so on and so forth. And what if somebody said to you, that all sounds like kind of a waste of time. I, why don't I just write it the right way from the beginning? Yes, and, and, and that's, that's, that's when um, you actually do need to know um, how you talk to a person in that sense. For me, it's about uh, what, what my colleague would call, uh, because you do not know what you do not know, you start by, uh, in, in martial arts, we, call, we, we do it the shuhari way. That means you just follow what the masters tells you and you just keep going that way. And as you get better at the craft, you start to see. And obviously, when you get better, you actually can preempt. You could actually jump a couple of steps in that. But by going through all these baby steps, you are burning into your brain, burning into your habits that the baby steps helps you that every time you make a mistake, you are just one commit away from the mistake. And it's not painful. You don't have to waste sweat and emotions, uh, caring about time loss, caring about um, um, investment, time invested for something that you've written and you realize it doesn't work. Because each of these baby steps demonstrates to you that you are just one control Z, command Z away from the last mistake. So that's, ah. that's usually how I would sell it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm quite harsh, especially with, uh, I mean, I wouldn't use the word harsh. The thing is that I, I, I basically would slap them at the back of their head <laughs> when, when, when they don't do it that way. But I think I drill it enough uh, with people who likes and follows the, the kind of craft. They are meticulous. They appreciate the craft of doing things that way. And that's how we grow to find the right people that we want to work with. And these people, it's in our hope that eventually they go up in their position in the rank in the company that they leave and join another company and they want to bring this kind of practice and that's how we get word of mouth and that's how oh, we, I see. 
move on as well. So we like or we enjoy working with like-minded people and people that are attracted to us, we are attracted to them as well. And, and that's how we work and that's how we operate. Yeah, interesting. Um, so if somebody were to pose that same question to me, like this all seems like a waste of time, why don't we just write the whole thing? Um, mm-hmm. My answer would like overlap with yours. If we made a Venn diagram of your answer and my answer, there'd be a lot of overlap, I think, but there was some stuff you said that that didn't really occur to me. Um, and then there was some that, that I would say the same thing. So I would say the same thing about uh, about if you make a mistake, you don't have to go back very far to, to get back to a working state. One of my mm-hmm. programming principles is keep everything working all the time. Sometimes yep. I see people attempting a refactor, for example, and they change the code quite drastically and, and get to a point where things don't work at all anymore. And then they discover that they can't get back to a working state because they've changed so much that they can't figure out how to get back. The analogy I use is if if you imagine you're walking on a narrow trail in the forest, it's easier just to look down every few steps to make sure you're still on the trail than to let yourself stray off the trail and try to find the trail again. Um, So I I definitely agree with that. Um, And I think things like Git come into the picture here too because... I like to make very, very frequent commits. When I code in front of students, they're often surprised how frequently I commit. Um, But part of that reason is because making a commit to me is not just about saving the thing you just did. It's about Mm -hmm. isolating the thing you just did from whatever you're about to do next. Because maybe the thing you just did just now is a very safe one-line change. Mm -hmm. But the thing you're about to do next is more risky and so I'll commit my trivial change right now because I don't want to mix my one-line trivial change that I know is good with this bigger, riskier thing because then if something goes wrong, I'll have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, anyway, I digressed a little bit there, but point is I, I, I would have given that same answer as you. The other thing I would say is that another one of my programming principles for myself is to lower the cognitive burden at all times so when i write tests the one of the things i like about it is that i can decide what i want to do and then capture that on the screen in the form of a test and then i can free my brain i, I refer to it as my mental ram it's a stack pop yeah exactly so i i get it out of out of memory and onto disk and then my, I, I can delete all my RAM and, and start fresh. And then once I have the what on the screen, then I can think about the how. And I only like to think about a little bit of the what and a little bit of the how at once. Because, again, I, I work with programmers sometimes, and we have some programming task before us. And they try to think about the whole thing all at once. And it's too hard. Like, I'm not smart enough to think about all that. And even if I was, it's like not efficient to try to think about all that at once. Even though there's overhead to thinking about just a little bit, like there's overhead to writing a test, running it, doing just a little bit at a time. That's slower than just having ChatGPT write the whole entire thing. Um, <laughs> if if I were as smart as ChatGPT, I could do that, but I'm not and nobody is. and And so you can't. So I think that's a much more efficient way to work. Yeah, 
It's kind of like uh, Hansel and Gretel, where you actually drop a biscuit along the way, and you you, you don't get lost because you have the biscuit to trace back where was oh, the last food. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I like I like the 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 reduction of the the mental burden uh, concept and analogy you're giving. So the stack pop thing. Yeah, once I get it into the test, and once I see it green, now I know I can do a refactor in the safe zone because whatever refactoring it has to happen within this green zone, and that's it. And if my refactor doesn't work, I'm back to my shitty implementation. But that's fine. Let's try something else. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I was doing some live coding in front of a group online the other day. Um, and I got to a point where I was getting an error message and I didn't understand the error message. And I think what a lot of programmers would do is is stare at the error message and think, hmm, what's wrong? Hmm, and, and just sit there and think. Um, but I didn't do that. I read the error message. I observed that I didn't understand. And I said, let me just blow this away. And I'll start over and work in smaller, more careful steps this time. Right. Well, there, there's an important uh, message you talk about just now, which is uh, the developer reading the error message and staring at it. There were many a times I even come across developers who don't actually read carefully what was in the error message, and they just mm. glean and 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 they they think they, they they know what's wrong, and then they start hacking away, and that's even worse, in my <laughs> opinion. Yeah, so I think a lot of developers, you know, it's interesting. Um, th- people think of developers as being really smart people. And mm-hmm. maybe developers are aware of this and they think of themselves as being really smart. And they fail to educate themselves in some certain really important ways. Um, and I think a lot of developers could use some training in epistemology uh, because that that's a big problem. Like people see an error message and they form a belief about what the error mm-hmm. message means, but what they, the way they formed that belief was epistemolo- epistemologically invalid. Um, they, they didn't pass that potential belief through enough scrutiny before they accepted it as a belief and promoted it from, a, um, from an observation to, to an actual belief. Um, so, oh, yeah. What's that? Pist- Oh, epistemology, the, the study of how we know what's true. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is, is it a, a, a branch of psychology? Um, I think I'd call it a branch of philosophy closely related to logic. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What carries it? Big wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it might be Greek. I think it goes back to those uh, those Greek philosophers, perhaps. I, I don't know. But I, th- I found that very useful because also in the process of debugging, it's really easy to get tricked into believing things that aren't true. And so you really have to protect yourself. Um, and I think it's good to familiarize yourself with logical fallacies. Um, mm-hmm. I think the example I always use first in logical fallacies is uh, post hoc Ergo propter hoc, which from Latin is um, after, therefore, because, you know, people, people see that some event happened and then some error state occurred. They say, oh, this thing happened and then we got an error. That means that this thing was the cause of the error. 
But a surprising mm-hmm. amount of the time, that kind of thing is just a coincidence. And so that's, um, you have to be really careful about those things. Another thing that I teach is um, Bayesian reasoning, where you, you don't say this is true or this is not true. You say, okay, well, this thing happened and then we saw a bug. So maybe we assign like a 50% chance that that was the cause, but we're not giving it full credence yet. And then if you say, if you see more evidence that that thing was the cause of the bug, you say, okay, now we may maybe give it like 65% credence. But then you see something else and it's like, oh, well, this other thing actually could have happened instead. We'll downgrade that to 40% credence now. And like, I don't actually assign actual numbers to these things, but like, as I'm doing an investigation, um, I'll see certain things and I'll say like, okay, I know this for absolute certain and I know it for absolute certain because of this supporting evidence, this other thing, this is just like a maybe. And I think it's really important to keep track of what you know for sure and what's only a suspicion because, again, it's really easy to fool yourself into believing things that aren't true. Yeah, I I think this is very true in the world where we are in now with software where you have microservices and you have all the, the complex tech and they are such complex systems and correlation does not equate uh, causation. And, yeah. and, and time, especially with this kind of complex systems, uh, there are a lot of interactions with the, the, the different services and the different ecosystem and, and the infrastructure you're, you're deploying to. And therefore, I, I, I agree with you very much. Uh, uh, we, we spend a lot of time um, working with people, trying to teach them that uh, uh, complex systems do not lend itself very well with uh, typical linear reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it requires a great level of of care. Um, you have to kind of go into a different mode of thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, okay, so I want to ask you maybe a couple more things about, about testing before we wrap up. Sure. Um, so what, what do you do when you um, find these tests? Okay, so another, another problem that I see, very common problem with testing, is that somebody will have test cases where they do some exercise and then they have several assertions at the end. Uh-huh, uh, that uh-huh. pertain to very unrelated things. And I see you sm- smiling because I imagine you've seen this quite a bit yourself also. Yes. Uh, typically, uh, this kind of symptoms happens with systems that are hard to test. So uh, for them to get into a state where they could test, so that the AAA, which is the arrange, assert, uh, arrange action and assert, there is so much effort to get your system into a state where you can test then I do an action and then I do an assertion and then I say to myself, let's not waste the state. Let me do a couple yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, those, those are generally, generally the case. Um, and, and the other, I mean, it's kind of correlated in that sense is that the test suite runs so slow and for them, they are running with um, shared test environments, which is a big no-no. But uh, typically, with the clients that I work with, um, they, they actually have some central hub to control uh, core systems. For example, it's a core banking system, and it's so hard to control. And for this shared test environment, when they boot up, uh, bootstrap the test, and they can get 
the environment to a state, coerce it to a state where they can start doing their action and assertion, if they were to put it into another test case, it's just too costly. Oh, and that's let why me, they go Let me see if I understand a couple of things. So you're talking about a shared test environment. My experience with that sort of thing is maybe developers have their own local test environment and then there's a shared staging environment, something like that. Mm-hmm. Are you right. talking about for the even the automated test environment? People can't yes. run tests on their local machine. They have a shared test environment where they run the automated tests. So for their local test environments, they skip those tests which have critical paths that has dependencies on those shared test environments because it is expensive, there's licensing costs, it's hard to control. There are no nice APIs where you can actually get the environment to a known state. Typically, mm-hmm. they have to go through uh, expensive rituals to get the environment to a, a, a state. They have to allocate time within a week, like maybe one hour you run this test and you have this environment all to yourself and that's it. And those are the situations where when they run those tests and it gets slow and it's so difficult to coerce it and they have this narrow window to run those tests against those environments, that's when this kind of symptoms happen where they do multiple assertions. Okay, this is actually a bit different from the scenarios I've seen. What do you, I'm curious, what do you do about those things? Um, I imagine there are certain hard limitations and you just do what you can and you have to compromise a bit. Yep, that's uh, precisely what they said. We compromise by, I mean, within those situations, we, now the problem with, what is the problem with multiple assertions? Um, It's you lose pinpoint accuracy about something going wrong. When a test fails, you do not know exactly which line of production code is causing the failure. And that's what's bad about multiple assertions, right? And and, and, and it doesn't give you clarity and I can't run my test independently. Right? Yeah, and I'll, also- I'll add one thing also. Um, when you have multiple assertions in one test case and you open up a new test you've never seen before yep. and you ask yourself the question, what is this test about? It's really right. hard to answer that question. Precisely, precisely. So, 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 so the test is not clear and it's not precise and it's not singly, uh, it doesn't tell you with crystal clear accuracy what exactly it's trying to assert, what is it, is it verifying. And, 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 and that's one, one, one of the uh, big problems. But with, with clients, with this kind of uh, situation, with this kind of environmental needs uh, where they have like expensive backend banking systems, for example, or I, I don't know, it might be uh, some systems that you have to interact with, which is uh, hard to get time to use and it's hard to spin it locally um, and there's no nice API where you could actually wire into and basically interact with it and that's when it gets expensive and now um, in those cases when they run the test locally we try to create wire mocks to mock out those kind of dependencies right um, but when we are dealing with the end-to-end test we really do want to hit the real systems Without that, I'm actually telling myself I actually don't have the full reliability to know that my test is actually reliable. That I'm, I mean, the test could be telling me it's working, but when I go into production, it, it breaks because someone upgraded the environment to a new version and the API starts breaking and whatnot. 
So those are the, 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 the kind of frequent situations where we see developers get into those situations. And what we do is we kind of carve out a small section of the test where we use things like Montebank or even some kind of wire mocks to kind of create a fake environment that we can work with so that we can iterate quickly uh, with those tests. But yeah, um, I, I've seen a lot of those cases where there's multiple assertions and test cases. Yeah, yeah, it's very common. Um, and what I've seen, so I, I have to imagine a little bit what the other person was thinking. Um, but the thing you mentioned about the expensive test setup, certainly I see that too. And, and what I imagine people are thinking is that we had to do all this expensive test setup. Let's be efficient by putting multiple assertions in this test, which I can understand. Um, but I think it's not always, um, sometimes they're, they're fooling themselves because maybe they imagine that, um, well, actually, no, 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 they're not wrong because then the test will still only run, the setup will still only run one time. So it mm-hmm. is more efficient in that sense. But I think they're making a, um, they're making a judgment about the cost benefit, which is mistaken. So they're they're making the judgment that the the machine time is expensive, and we don't want to make the test suite run in more time than it has to. So therefore, they'll be efficient about the way they run they write the test so it runs faster. But if they think that way, what they're not bringing into the picture is the cost of maintenance. And the the cost of the people's salaries who have to open up these tests and say, what is this test about? I can't understand. They have to spend all this time on it. And I would make the bet that it's actually more costly to to pay these people to spend the extra time on the tests than to pay for the extra test run time. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, further to that, I mean, if I were to add another point with uh, multiple assertions is that actually the multiple assertions, the tests, they are relying on previous side effects that could have happened uh, because yeah, of, and, and, and you probably would have cornered yourself into a scenario which looks nice and it's passing. But in production, you may not have that nice kind of side effect happening to get into that green for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes it harder to troubleshoot flaky tests and and maybe other kinds of test problems too, because you see like the last assertion and these Mm -hmm. other things have happened. Yeah. Because it's usually not like you have a bunch of exercise and then assertion, assertion, assertion. It's like you have a bunch of exercise, then an assertion, more exercise, then an assertion, more exercise, then an assertion. Point on. Yeah. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, what is the state? It's it's too complicated to keep it all in your head. Yeah. 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 But I'm curious, why, why the question? You yourself have come across many of such kind of uh, code bases as well with like tests having multiple assertions? I have, yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, can't speak for other communities outside of Rails, but in the in the Rails community, at least, the state of testing is is not that great. Even though Rails has maybe more really? of a culture of... Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that Rails maybe has more of a culture of testing than, than some other communities, but most of the code... Like, I've, I've 
almost never opened up a code base and said, hey, the tests look good. It's, it's usually in a pretty poor state. Well, it may not look good, but in a Rails ecosystem, without tests, you're pretty much naked. I would use the word naked because you don't have types. Uh, yeah. If you are in something like Elm, you're in Java or some compiled languages, you actually have typing to kind of save you in some way. And, and, and Rails without tests, is, it's really dangerous. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and that's why there's so many organizations with just an enormous amount of waste. They spend so much time fighting bugs, fighting legacy code, um, mm-hmm. pe- people having to build things and then start over and build them again because they, they can't get it right the first try. Yeah, it's it's quite a mess out there, unfortunately. Yeah, not just with Rails, I'm sure, but with just programming in general. Yeah, well, um, uh, someone in the Rails community that I admire very much and I do follow uh, a lot is Sandy Metz, uh, mm-hmm. 99Bots, and great book for any uh, newbie programmers or even mid-level mid, uh, programmers and even seasoned programmers. She has a lot of gems in uh, 99 bottles, which I, I encourage people to go and uh, read it. it. It's a gem of a book. And she's rewritten it in, in Node.js as well, so it's really, really good. Yeah, I have that one. And I had, maybe not a lot of people know this, well, I had both Sandy on the show a really long time ago, and then I had... TJ Stankus, who I believe was a co-author on 99 Bottles, I had mm-hmm. him on again later. TJ actually was on the show with Sandy when she came on, and then TJ came on again later. Um, but yeah, that's I, I enjoyed that one. Um, okay, so uh, hang on, I have to... Yongsheng, it took me a second to remember how to pronounce it. Um, Yongsheng... Um, we're, we're about at the end here. Is there any, anywhere you'd like to send people online, anything like that? See what you're up to, that kind of thing. All right. Uh, you can visit us at, uh, www.oddy.com. Uh, check out what, what services we offer. Uh, Singapore, Oddy, we basically operate within ASEAN. Um, not anywhere outside of that, but, uh, yeah, I like to speak with people who are interested in the work that we do and like-minded people, let's just hop on board, uh, be it Discord. You can catch me on Discord or, or, or Twitter and uh, let's chat. Great. Well, we'll put that, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And Yongsheng, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate your time. <laughs>